Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed Episode 389 is recorded live November 29th, 2018. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where I don't know what spring looks like. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well and staying warm. Yeah, I was just walking my driveway tonight and it's crunchy. I cannot remember a year where we've had such a long winter stretch this early in the season. Yeah, we've, well, we've I, had. I've been, I was going to say I was in Detroit this weekend, and there's a numerous ponds and lakes that's got skim ice on them already. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, that, I think for this is this is good and and bad, because uh, sometimes I think if you get the snow on too early, it doesn't freeze roll down in the ground. So that's my uh, theory for mosquitoes next year. Well, you get a lot of honeycomb though if you get snow and sun. Oh. Snow, oh, hit the honeycomb. Not good ice. Yeah, for the ice. I'm, I'm, I'm even talking about the yards. You know, because you get the, ah. uh, you, you know, if you have a little bit of bare ground and it gets cold for about a week before you start having a lot of snow cover, then it will go down. That snow will insulate it, and I don't think we kill all those mosquito larvae, but maybe we will. Hopefully, we will. I'd like to think we'll have a fairly light mosquito spring. Uh, I'd be more inclined to wish I'd freeze a freaking moles in my yard. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's a possibility as well. Now, for ice, what are the best conditions for ice? I mean, if we had to, to design a dream season for making ice. You, no snow, it, cold cold weather. No snow? Yep. I mean, be be really cold for four, five, six days in a row to get that good, firm base. Mm-hmm. That's what I'd like to have. And then maybe, you know, we have those deep freezes where it's about 20 for a week. Yeah. So Let's give us we, a good solid base. So when we look at a pond and it skims over and it gets cold, the ice is building down from that top layer, isn't it? That is correct. If you've ever, if, if it's really interesting, I, I never had a GoPro when I was down there, but Bob and I were diving in the river a couple of years ago. And it was cold enough that when we got down and we're looking up, where you had ice on the shoreline, come back under it, we were actually watching ice form. And, you know, I mean, you could watch it turn into ice and extend oh. the ice shelf out. That was freaking awesome. I, I can imagine that had to have been amazing. Uh, and, and with all the GoPros, you'd think that somebody would have done. In fact, you could, you could almost do that, uh, go out daily. You know, put a GoPro on a pole and stick it in the water. And at some point in time, you know, keep swapping them in and out. And you're going to get that eventually. Yeah, it's a high possibility. Huh. It sounds like a, a project. Maybe it's a challenge for some of the listeners, somebody with a GoPro. Sounds like a remote sensor so you could watch it and, you know, turn it on and off if it wasn't doing something. Yeah. Oh, there you go. That's even fancier still. Oh, Karen's saying she doesn't want the ground to freeze yet. Uh, they haven't they haven't started on her new house, so yeah, this time of year you never know. I'd say yeah, construction projects. This this is uh, when I started my barn originally, like almost thirty years ago. It was like this: I had to drill the holes real quick, get them in, get the posts in. Makes it a little awkward though when you're trying to pour concrete and it's freezing. Yeah, you, it's uh, uh, what was it? There's a uh, a project at the nuclear plant going on. They're putting in new barriers. And uh, it was like November 15th was the deadline for concrete. So they're going to have to, uh, oh, no, no, it was asphalt. They can still pour concrete. That's what it was. The asphalt company shut down because they can't keep the asphalt warm enough so it doesn't set in the trucks. Yeah, concrete, I think you just have to insulate and cover. 
if you pour this cold, but it, it doesn't form as well. And I think they have to add some additives to it. I know it cures really good underwater. <laughs> yeah, may have to just got to do because it dries so slow. You have really good concrete when you're you know pouring underwater. Yeah, yeah, because it's a chemical process which concrete cures. Well, let's I go ahead. I used to wonder why when you pass a concrete truck, it rotates. Uh huh. And I didn't realize, and well, I learned because I was doing some audits on some supplier concrete to a nuclear plant. But the rotations, it can only rotate so many times before we can't use it as a nuclear plant, for example. And the way you check it out is the slump, meaning mm-hmm. concrete you order for a particular purpose and hardness. And a lot of it depends upon the aggregate you have and the speed of the rotation of the drum. So you don't have, if you're too fast, it'll separate the aggregate. So when you're pouring it, it's not consistent throughout puddle. Hmm. It's a whole thing. It's it's quite interesting. And let's get on to diving. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry about that. No problem. I think I started that that one. Uh, so our first article up is a diver who found a 150-year-old bottle of Scottish beer in Australia admits that he had opened it. The artifact now forms the centerpiece of Tennant's one million pound visitor center. And the stout, which predates Tennant's lager, is in a glass case. Jim Anderson, the founder of the now the now infamous bottle of the light of age shipwreck admitted he even smelled it but stopped it before he tasted concoction he revealed when i got it i removed the cork which you've got to do because the cork shrinks when it's been exposed to the air after the bottle has been in the sea so i took the cork out smelled it and thought yuck that's awful so i put a fresh cork in resealed it and just put it under the house jim and his wife were flown to glasgow Gow by tenants for the launch of their new visitor center in Well Park. He said it was fine. I found it 40 years ago while scuba diving in a shipwreck. It's been under the house just sitting there and gathering dust. Fortunately, I photographed it when it was 40 years ago. I didn't know where, where Well Park was, so I looked it up and contacted the brewery. He added, we, got, we had to get clearance from the Australian government for it to be sent out of the country on a permanent basis. It took probably three months' paperwork to get it cleared to leave the country. I That's only because he asked. Yeah, if he didn't ask, who would have? Well, could you know. Well, could customs? I mean, if you're coming into a country, don't they go through? And do you have anything to declare? Is it any liquids? And then some odd old bottle with liquid in it. I mean, these days somebody'd have you up against a wall. But he said, this is, uh, he says, I found other bottles when diving, but not too many full ones. They are all empty or smashed. And looking at that bottle, it's, he he found a cork that kind of passes for an old cork, didn't he? Well, I'm not sure how corks age. That is an odd looking top on that bottle. though. Well, it looks like a champagne cork, doesn't it? Well, I thought champagne corks were inside, not on top like that one. Aren't they the ones that have the big? They go on the top. Was it? I don't. I don't know. I think. I think champagne does that, like Brut or uh, Asti Spumante or something. Uh, and maybe somebody in the chat room. We should have some some cork experts in there. That doesn't look like that old of a, a bottle, though. I was looking at the third photo or something where it's sitting on the barrel, and mm-hmm. it's got an indenture around at the shoulder. It looks like the type that used to take a mold for the bottom half and a different one for the top. Yeah. I don't, I, it'd, it'd be nice to see up close because you know, we found enough bottles where you, you start to kind of get a feeling for which is older than something else. So yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm just, I look behind me. I've got a bottle with liquid in it that looks amazingly like that, but mine's a lightning stopper that's corroded. So this is, uh, I take it as a museum for the beer company. Is that what it is? It says. Well, it said Bevett Brewery Visitor Center. So it sounds like it is at the brewery. You know the picture of him and his wife? Mm -hmm. Or whomever. Off to the side, it says Bev at Brewery Visitor Center launch. And that's beer in the back. Yeah. Hey, (laughs) that's. He he got a trip out of it, and I I bet you they they did serve him some beer. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. And then we have something out of Malibu. They're having a sea star infestation. It said the coral-eating crown of thorns sea stars in Malibu have gotten the diving community scrambling to save the coral. Several dive operators, such as Scuba Junkie Seas and Reef Check Malaysia, and the Suba Tourism Board are among those involved in the exercise to remove the sea stars, which are the largest tropical starfish. Within three days, they managed to remove over 3,000 sea stars. Reef Check Program Manager, oh my goodness, Nadhira Mode Rafi, I think that's what we'll go with, said the number of crown of thorns sea stars were large enough to threaten the corals of, I said Malibu, it's not Malibu, it's Mabul, M-A-B-U-L. I was thinking these names don't sound like Southern California names. Uh, the diving haven off the southeast coast of Saba. It's normal for sea stars to be around the coral reefs as they feed on growing coral, giving slow-growing corals a chance to survive. It's normal to have two or three in a reef. There are thousands of them on Mabul Reef, and they are actively feeding on hard coral polyps, which is a big problem. We have seen white and dead coral already. He said the cleanup would continue throughout the week as another hot spot of sea star infestation has been detected. He said the sea star infestation could have occurred due to climate change, poor water quality, or lack of natural predators. The venomous nature of the sea stars also makes it important for the disposal to be handled carefully. Sea stars have to be buried after removal due to sharp venomous spines. We have to thank uh, some porn district council for helping to dispose of the sea stars we removed from the reefs. She said it's likely that the first time the outbreak of the crown of sea stars happened in Mabul and credited scuba junkie seas for exposing the infestation. It's interesting how Mother Nature is doing her own thing, not just divers. Yeah, she'll, uh, because they'll eat themselves out. So sometimes you wonder, uh, you know, are we fixing something we've caused or are we delaying something that's supposed to happen? Well, they got their plug in there for uh, global warming, so that means us. <laughs> I, I think that's a catch-all on, on most of these stories. Scuba diver returns to water after brain injury. James Neal, 49, has been nominated for Brain Injury Charities Headway Alex Richardson Achiever of the Year Award for his battle return to scuba diving after suffering a devastating brain injury. James said, when I found out I was a finalist, I was lost for words. To hear that I inspired other people is just seriously cool. James suffered a subarachnoid hemorrhage, a bleed on the brain, just before Christmas in 2013. Medics told his wife, nipple kneel to prepare for the worst. He survived life-saving surgery, but was left with short-term memory loss, had difficulty thinking logically, making decisions, and being rational. His inability to filter his thoughts made him blunt, which had led him to being forced to leave one of two diving clubs he attended. However, thanks to the support of the Cheltenham Sub-Aqua Club and his doctors, James worked his way back into the water. And I shouldn't laugh. I mean, that it's great he's overcome that. But we, we may want to do a poll. <laughs> Was he blunt before <laughs> he had the, the brain injury? Uh, James explained for the first half of a dozen dives, I was absolutely terrified. I would break out in a cold sweat, even though it couldn't happen. I was worried the pressure would cause me to have another brain bleed, but diving is my identity and I couldn't dive. I don't know what I would have done. It was my passion that pulled me through. Thanks to his harm, hard work. Uh, he's now ranked among the top 1% of divers worldwide and works as an elite diving instructor. He added, I'm qualified to dive depths of a hundred meters plus carrying multiple cylinders Breathing gases that would be deadly if inhaled at the wrong depths, but can't make a bacon and egg sandwich without ruining it. It makes no sense. Explain difficulties faced during people knew I had sustained brain injury because I looked fine and were unwilling to accept I was struggling. The problem with brain injury, it's a hidden fluctuating disability. James will find out if he has won, his, won the Headway Annual Award Ceremony at London's Dorchester Hotel on December 7th. I'm still, you know, I read the other aspect where it says short-term memory, thinking logically, making decisions, and being rational. I That's got to be 
fixed or something. Otherwise, you'd be sort of ludicrous to be down there at 300 feet. You know, it doesn't sound logical. No. Well, and then he's saying, he says, but I can't make a bacon and egg sandwich without ruining it. It makes no sense. So it almost sounds like it's selective that certain skills or tasks he's able to do fine and others he can't manage, which would make me worried if you're still diving at that depth. If you had a challenge you had not anticipated, how would you reasonably work with that? Well, he certainly wouldn't want to have to make a bacon and egg down there. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking is that how do you know what you can't do, especially when it's not consistent? Yeah. But the, um, unless, of course, that was what he had initially, and now he's, you know, from that aspect is better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because that's tough. If you have something that's not visible, I can see, uh, you know, people having a hard time dealing with you because they just think it's an excuse. Yeah. It's interesting. Oh, I'm glad to see that he was able to keep diving, and hopefully he was safe and uh, had some good support while he was doing it. Absolutely. And continues to have support. Yes. Uh, Hallowell, man leading state effort to locate centuries-old shipwreck in Bristol. The Bureau of Parks and Lands is closing in a ship that sank off the coast in Maine in 1635. Tom Destarden is looking for an old ship, very old, having sunk in 1635. The Hallowell... Resident and director in the state of Bureau of Parks and Lands learned about the Angel Gabriel through talking to University Sir Warren Rice, who spent years trying to locate the ship in the 70s. The Angel Gabriel set sail from England in May 1635, headed to New England with supplies and travelers making their way to the New World. Known to have wrecked off the coast of Bristol during a storm on the voyage, the ship has eluded searchers over the years, but with more sophisticated technology now available, just Jardin is hopeful a ship soon may be discovered on the ocean floor. He said Angel Garibald reached Permaquid, a village now known as Bristol, on August 14th. The village was bustling with industry reliant on the fur trade and salt cod. It's become important because Europe is becoming more urbanized, Just Jardin said. I was thriving as a small, you know, it was thriving as a small community. The ship described as half cargo ship, half warship, anchored somewhere in the bay, and most of its passengers disembarked. Permaquid was a pit stop on the way to northern Massachusetts, but the great Colonel Hurricane hindered the ship's plan to go south. According to University of Rhode Island, Hurricane's Science and Society, the storm shipped the Jamestown Colony, Virginia, without causing any damage. Prominent Massachusetts Bay Colony leader John Winthrop wrote the storm blew with such violence an abundance of rain. The surge from the storm was about 20 feet in Rhode Island. The storm toppled trees, destroyed homes, blew ships off their anchors. It was likened to a Category 3 hurricane compared to modern storms that caused similar damage. Rice, associate professor of history at University of Maine, said the storm pulled the Angel Gabriel apart, destroying the 240-ton vessel, taking four lives with it. It burst into pieces while anchored. The hull probably pulled apart. And it doesn't happen a lot nowadays, but the wooden ship, it did. Descendants of the London merchant James Cogwell dedicated a plaque near the harbor in 1991 commemorating the family's arrival, and it mentioned the shipwreck. Another plaque was dedicated to the event in 2010 right outside of Permaquid Harbor where Angel Gabriel met its fate. Many of the ship's passengers hopped in the next boat to Massachusetts, eventually settled there. Rice 71 searched for the ship while living at home in Bristol as a graduate student in the late 70s. His search involved a number of boat outings, dives, and different types of technology. He said his search turned up a few anomalies, noticeably disturbed areas of seafloor, but nothing substantial is ever found. We have some anomalies in the magnetic field, but that's about it. We didn't expect to find anything, and we didn't, just mostly rock formations. Rice said the ship was built in English. Explorer Sir Walter Raleigh's last expedition to the New World in 1617. The ship was purchased by merchants in Bristol, England, before it drafted in the Spanish fleet, which eventually bought it by a trading post owner in Permaquid. The Angel Gabriel is likened to the Mayflower in style, but it was 18 feet longer, had 18 cannons instead of the Mayflower's 10. Using a magnetometer device that measures magnetic force, Rice 
hunted to find any anomalies in the harbor. The only area he did not search thoroughly was a mooring area for boats in the bay because the presence of boats would have complicated the device readings. There are a lot of chains and concrete blocks and expensive boats. We don't want to drag electronics in there and get it all riled up. Uh, Rice stopped searching in the 1980s, published a book about his efforts titled Angel Gabriel, the Elusive English Galleon in 2001. The search was put off until Desjardin picked it up this year after participating in an archaeological dig at the site. For the fast, past few months, he and his small crew have mapped the bottom of the harbor, noticing new anomalies along the seafloor. I was always interested in it. It bothered me that it's just sitting there. We've got to find this silly ship. He said the ship's priceless artifacts and people would be interested worldwide if it were discovered. It's a priceless in term of information we can glean from it. It's literally a time capsule. It doesn't have stack of gold bars, but historical value is really great. There's probably 400-year-old bottles of wine down there. He said the discovery of the ship would confirm or challenge what historians know about ships built in the 1600s. The ships itself would be important artifacts. We don't know much about the merchant ships from that time period. We could learn a lot by the technology of the time. And then he goes on and on and on. And So do you think it's still there? I mean, that's what I have to be wondering. You've got that many cannons, and you've got a good magnetometer. You've already, you're in a particular locale. I don't know how big this harbor area is. It would be interesting to know. So so the cannons, if they weren't recovered, I mean, that's kind of what I kept thinking. As I said, it broke up. And in, in a fairly young colony, wouldn't any wood or anything you could scrap or grab be of value? One would think so. I yeah. think comment he made later is cannons don't rot. So to me, the, your best chance of finding something is yeah. magnetometer. Yeah, and that's why he's doing it. Cannons on it. Well, what they I almost need to, need to do is to uh, run through it once they, uh, you know, really this time of year because you've all the boats are in. So that would be the time you would you'd run through the docks. And again, unless that ship has been buried and you can excavate it layer by layer. I'm, I don't really mo- know why it's considered an important artifact about the merchant ship construction. Why? Of, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you've got timbers on it, but if you don't have an organized sequence of timbers, I, again, I'm, I don't know that much about the archaeological aspect of how much is significant of a ship to be able to say I can construct it. Uh, you know, Karen, since she did go to that class, she has a lot better feel for it. It'd be interesting to have her input on that. Yeah. Um, I mean, would I love to find it or, or see it or have it found? Certainly. Oh, um, yeah. But it's, you know, they, they say challenging. Don't we have examples of, of vessels that old? I know that if you go to Seville, you can find records of cargoes forever. I can't believe they don't have construction aspects of the ships in the same place. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, hopefully they find it. But like you said, knowing something's in a certain particular area and not being able to find it after, and he's, he's put a lot of time in it, got to be frustrating. Well, and then did somebody find it and have just, like, not say anything? You know, you're putting in a seawall or something, and you just, ah in my way but uh you know it seems like lake minnetonka hasn't had a problem finding uh shipwrecks they've they've identified 10 new wrecks at the bottom of the lake uh, the underwater archaeology duo Ann miriman and christopher olson of maritime heritage minnesota work to preserve and share what they find with the public uh, they recently released the lake minnetonka nautical Archaeology 8 Project Report, which details 10 new watercraft discovered at the bottom of Lake Minnetonka. Merriman, Olson, and volunteers conducted field work from June through September in 2018. They used improved sonar equipment and scuba diving to investigate 27 unknown anomalies and one known shipwreck at the bottom of the lake. An anomaly is a sonar data that may be an object such as a watercraft, a wreck, a vehicle, a tree, or a rock. The team discovered 10 new wrecks, six submerged maritime sites, three snowmobiles, 
two trees, two big rocks, as well as a bunch of older objects in the bottom of the lake. The group did research the places, the wreck, and archaeological sites into historical context so Minnesotans can learn from what sits at the bottom of their lakes. One of the most interesting wrecks Merriman Olson said they found during the time was the state's only two underwater archaeologists identified over the summer in Lake Minnetonka. Maritime Heritage Minnesota identifies a 21.5-foot-long wooden gasoline launch named Theta after rescanning Anomaly in June 2018. The launch was likely constructed in 1900 and sank around 1920. Branches of the lake indicate Theta was used for passenger transportation around the lake, noting it's small enough to access both the upper and lower lake easily, as well as shallow bays and shorelines. The survival of the gasoline launch Theta wreck at the bottom of the lake greatly enhances the maritime history. Currently, she is a one-of-a-kind article archaeological site in our state. The Theta nameplate is attached to the launch's port and starboard bows, which should help the team search the complete history of the watercraft. However, to date, no mention of Theta has been located in the maritime historical record. Would that be normal for a small boat like that to not, people not to have talked about it? Because we've, we've got examples of that all around here. I mean, every little lake seemed to have a launch. Would the would that maybe not have gone by that name? Uh, you figure that lake is almost 15,000 acres, max depth 113 feet, 125 miles of shoreline. So that's pretty big. Yeah, but it, but it seemed like even so, people would talk about it. I mean, we've, you know, even around here, now we've got examples of, you know, we know the the names of the boats that are crossing the river. I just wonder if maybe the the nameplate might not be what it was called. You know, you could have had a boat that was at one lake and then somebody brought it over or bought it secondhand and then, you know, named it something else. You know, you have to actually go and look at the nameplate. Now, is that, I mean, they're showing the, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm looking in the photo. You can see the, uh, the dive light on it, and it's a script that says Theta. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's pretty visible. I mean, especially for it to survive. So it looks like somebody had, uh, you know, that was a, a metal nameplate. And then here are some of the other discoveries they identified. A half-deck barge wreck, 21-foot-long boat that likely sank in 1900 to 1910. Fisherman's Friend wreck likely constructed 1890s and early 1900s, sank around 1905. Through 1915, motorboat wreck four, a 13.1 foot book, uh, long boat likely built in 1910, sank around 1925. Um, motorboat wreck three, built around 1915, sank about 1930. Aluminum motorboat likely built 48, sank before 59, with the reporting noting it appears to have been hit in both sides of the watercraft or a heavy object. Steel motorboat, 7.8 feet long, covered in zebra mussels, likely built between 1915 and 1920, sank in 1930, prior to 1930. Crestline Sportsman Wreck, 11.8 foot boat, built in 1961, sank before 1972. Larson Game Warden, 12 foot long boat, built in 1965, sank between 1980 and 1982 while motoring on the lake, still has a Deep Haven dock sticker attached to it. Fiberglass scow sailboat, 11.8 feet long, with no discernible logos or stickers. As the wrecks are documented, the changes in watercraft design and construction will more completely fill out the maritime historical record. And they go on. But that's kind of the same thing. They're, they're talking about all this history that they're they're documenting. I'm, I, as, as a diver, I find it interesting, but I'm not sure. I mean, these these are boats. Yeah. Okay. Well, you, you've got to go back and check out Pawpaw Lake. Look at the history. and We've done presentations at the museum, and that lake is not nearly by any stretch of the imagination as large as this one that they're talking about. And, you know, we had steamers on it that held 250 people. Uh, right. The bones of the one major one is the one that we have looked for for years, cannot find it. There's two in Outlet Bay, you know. But mm-hmm. again, it's 35 years ago, you could find the bones. Now you got five foot of silt over it. Yeah. So it's interesting. We do have histories of it. 
but <laughs> you know, I still like to go out there and I like to find stuff. You know, you got the house that's out there. Yep. That's fallen down. It, if you didn't know it was a house and looked at it 40 years ago, you wouldn't know. But, uh, yeah, it's still interesting. And I'd love to go out there and find stuff again. Yep. More power to them. And then this one, I think we're heading over to the East Coast now, uh, uh, exploring a sunken blockade runner condor. This one's out of North Carolina. Uh, three dozen sunken Civil War vessels litter the coastline. One of them is a blockade runner condor. Sitting 700 yards off the coast of Fort Fisher and 25 feet below the surface, the condor is considered one of the best-preserved Civil War blockade runners in the world. The ship is marked with two white buoys visible from the beach. Built in Scotland to be one of the fastest ships to run the blockade, the condor was out of its maiden voyage when it ran aground October 1st, 1864. The only person to die in the shipwreck was Rose O'Neill Gleenhow, one of the most celebrated spies for the Confederacy. After publishing a memoir in Europe, Greenhow was headed home aboard the Condor, carrying gold from her book sales, but she never made it to shore. Legend, of course, is that all the gold that pulled her under, said Billy Ray Morris, a state deputy underwater archaeologist. Greenhow was laid to rest in Washington's historic Oakdale Cemetery. In June 2017, the wreck was designated North Carolina's first heritage dive site, highlighted in small part of the rich history right off our shore. Morris speed, spearheaded the effort. She is incredibly well-preserved. The entire vessel is there. Both engines, the air pump, are still connected to the paddle wheel shaft, and the paddle wheels are still there. You can swim under all of it. She is built at 222 feet, and there's 218 feet, 6 inches of her left. In all, Morris says the waters of the Cape Fear area, home to 36 sunken American Civil War vessels, in terms of mid-19th century marine technology, we have the best collection of shipwrecks anywhere in the world. And for the American Civil War, there's nothing that comes close to comparing to what we have here. Those who are interested in exploring the Condor can dive the site from June to November. However, Morris says the best times are late April, early May, October, and November. There are colder temperatures during those months preventing algae and plankton blooms in the water. Go out and look at this, Morris said. This is everybody's heritage, and this is shared by everybody. Yeah, not too many places you can dive on a uh, Civil War wreck. No. Uh, of course, we have our own condor. Which one would that be? That's the one up. Uh, that's the one that uh, Kevin has dove m multiple times. He dove it again last year in the ice. Uh, I've dove it one time with him. That's a good part of the wreckage there. Was I'm that, trying to, that, I know where it's at, but I can't think of the name right this second. Yeah, I, I, I'm... Yeah, I've drawn a blank, but that's the one where it had been burned and then pushed out. Yeah. But the pictures I'm looking at here for the Condor, the pictures are basically the same as the other one. I mean, it looks that way. But again, timbers underwater with quagons, zebras, and all that, all the same. Mm -hmm. And then we have artifacts recovered from the Wida shipwreck site. The century-old bronze bracelets are the latest treasures to be recovered from the site of the widest shipwreck. The famed pirate ship sank off the well fleet in April 1717 and wasn't discovered until 1980 by explorer Barry Clifford. Clifford said his son Brandon found the bracelets, and they're now on display at the Wainda Pirate Museum in West Yarmouth. And it seemed like I had more of a, when I originally looked at this article, there was more to it, but... Oh, here it is. Continue reading. i got to hit the button. Ah. He said, hundreds of Manila bracelets to date in the 17th century were originally from West Africa. Most likely they're used as currency in slave markets, and that's how they ended up on the Wida. Brandon Clifford said in the email, there's many more yet to be discovered. Pretty intriguing stuff. The Wida was used as a slave ship before it was captured by Captain Samuel Black Sam Bellamy and became a pirate ship. Barry Clifford said the divers have wrapped up for the season earlier than they hoped because of the weather. They had hoped to dive through the month of October, but it wasn't possible. The winds are just so erratic. Clifford and his team said they plan to return to the site in the spring. The widest shipwreck still holds many secrets yet to be revealed. They barely scratched the surface. What's there? God knows what we're going to find next year. Got some nice photos in there, too. Yeah, I've got a big block on mine, so I can't see much other than the net bag with all the uh, bracelets. Yeah, there's a, they, you see there's a, 
a little box that says get Metro headlines. And then if you click it, there's, there should be like a more button. When you click on that, you can see a little bit more, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah. you know, there's, as long as there's still something to find down there, it should be interesting. Is this run by the state? Who's doing this excavation? Mm, do they say Clifford and Brandon? Because uh, it's it's who found it, Barry Clifford. So I don't know. I mean, or did did he get claim to it as discovering it? That's why I was curious. Yeah. Or was yeah? It it doesn't it doesn't go into that. Huh. I wonder what. I wonder. Well, it's what, off the coast, right? Yes. Exactly how far off did it say? Ooh, I'm trying to see if they say in the dive depth. It looks the water looks pretty clear and bright. So I'm going to say if that's reflective of yeah, see, wind up pirate museum. Well, you figure it was discovered. They've been working on it since 1980 or 1980s when it was uh, discovered. Yeah, I'm looking at the Wida Pirate Museum, Cape Cod, Discover the World of Pirates. The website's discoverpirates.com. And I'm watching my internet go really slow. Yeah, well, we'll see if it eventually loads. Oh, it's... it's well, I, got, I went to a different site, and I got a picture that says... Uh, Pirate Museum, which is pretty swift because it looks like it's got a boat inside of it. It's like the old Spanish galleon type, cannon alongside. That looks interesting. I was trying to find out again who is doing that. If it's a museum, had 28 cannon on it. Mm. Yes, and the crew fought valiantly, valiantly keep the 300-ton vessel away from the breakers Unfortunately, large galleys handle particularly poor in high winds, and with the ship carrying plenty of weight in the form of treasure and extra cannon, she was unmanageable. She truck, uh, struck the sandbar, forced of the collision, flung most of the men in the rigging that were in the rigging in the sea. Weather deck was swept. Everything was overboard. Wow. Hell of a storm. And it rolled the ship over putting the more than 40 spare cannon suddenly on top. And that tore the decks up. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking through some of the photos on this website. Yeah, it said 500 feet through churning waters, so it's offshore. Is it 500 feet down? No, 500 feet from shore. Oh, so Castaways oh. then had to spend, uh, swim 500 feet through churning waters that hovered around 40 degrees. Uh, many of them managed to make it Marconi Beach. But the beach was basically non-existent. It was up to the bluffs. That they had to climb 100 feet up the sandy cliffs. Yeah, so if it's that close to the shore, you know that they've got stuff spread all over. Yeah. So it's just a matter of hunting, finding, and then you know, the sand wants to take it away. Oh, yeah, they've got uh, nice pictures over on this side. Yeah, oh. said more than more than fifteen thousand coins recovered thus far represent a numistic, num, Oh goodness, coin collectors' most diverse assemblage of shipwreck treasure coins ever found. Yeah, I'm looking at one of these. I don't know what it's made of, uh, but it's got a a lion emblem, a sword, a sea, and some other symbolizing Manila currency. It said. Oh, yeah, there's tons of pictures on this one site. Yeah. You're not finding these type of things on Silver Beach, are you? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay, well, that's, that's worth it. I'm, I'm going to have to go back and visit the site. Yeah, this is, this is a nice one just to look at uh, the materials they have recovered. The yeah. pictures are very, very nice. I mean, they're not coins like we think of round ones. This one here is like a hexagon. Uh, some are best like they've been just cut out or stamped out, but not symmetric. Yeah, this is more of just a way of you've got gold. You want to make it kind of a currency. Here's what you do. You just kind of press it into a shape and do it. It's not how we're used to seeing coins. 
Yeah. And I think, uh, let me see if I can go back to that again. Well, I'm, I'm looking at one picture. This guy is in shorties, no hood, no no arm. Uh, by shorty, I mean he doesn't have sleeves. Uh, the visibility looks really good. And uh, it's a, a diver measures a Lombard cannon adjacent to Ballastone. Uh, the Lombard was a smoothbore cannon used in the early Renaissance in Spain and Italy. Uh, yeah, this everything here is covered over with looks like growth and coral, a lot of vegetation, but it doesn't look to be deep at all. Hmm. Wow, that'd be a neat dive out there. It would. I always like it when they they provide the pictures of what they've got in. The- yeah, this. If nothing else, somebody needs to go to the site and take a look at the pictures and the museum itself. That's really nice. Really nice. And then we have, uh, looking back, the SS Northwestern, a story of two pieces of glassware. Uh, it says, as part of the 60th anniversary year, the museum at Campbell River produced a book highlighting the series of 60 items in the museum's collection. The book talked about the physical remains from our past and brings their stories to life. Uh, and this is an example of one of the stories they talked about when looking at a pink frilly glassware. You do not immediately think shipwreck. However, the delicate candy dish and vase recovered from the wreck of the SS Northwestern, an incident that had become so immortalized in Campbell, Campbell's River's early history. The water to the south of Cape Mudge had long been recognized as hazardous. The combination of the ties and shallow shoals off the cliff make it a dangerous mix especially in stormy weather, a lighthouse installed at Cape Mudge in 1898 in recognition of these dangers has reduced the number of shipwrecks. However, it could not prevent the SS Northwestern running aground during a particularly violent winter storm in 1927. The Northwestern was bound for Alaska, laden down with passenger supplies for the Christmas season, and it went aground just off Cape Mudge in the early hours on December 14th. Although the weather kept rescuers from accessing the ship for nearly eight hours, the 187 passengers and crew were rescued without incident. They were taken to the Willows Hotel where they were accommodated, fed, fetted with a at the pavilion while they waited for the steamship to take them back to Seattle. That's not too bad. You get stuck in a, a shipwreck and you get a party. Uh because the ship and its contents were insured, the law stipulated that any perishable items had to be destroyed. Quandra Islanders and Campbell rivet, rivet trees could not bear to see so much food and so much supplies wasted. Some were so bold as to steal into the wreck before the insurance adjusters could arrive to take stock. But most rode out the wreck to salvage to see what they could as it was being thrown overboard for disposal by the crew of the Northwestern. Locals hid their rescued good from officials who threatened to search all the homes in the region for contraband. Canned goods were hidden under floorboards and behind walls, while the perishable items, such as oranges, made slightly salty by their swim in the sea, were immediately enjoyed. There was remembered finally by the Quandra Islanders as one of the best Christmases. We do not know whom <laughs> these depression glass items, as they became known, were intended, but it is remarkable that they had survived. They endured the shipwreck. And being thrown overboard, they were covered by Velma Cuthbertson, who treasured them. Her daughter Shirley donated these pieces to the museum. They've been displayed many times, sharing the dramatic story of the Northwestern and impact it had on the islanders. The vase and dish are the only items of museum collection salvaged from the wreck. <laughs> that's a that's an interesting story, and you can see that, can't you? <laughs> yeah, I can imagine everybody hiding stuff. <laughs> this- See that picture I sent you? Uh, now let me look. It's on Discord. Yep, I'm looking. It's in the general channel. Oh. The, the, the smoke floating in the air? That's a chip on fire. SS Northwestern in flames at Dutch Harbor. Oh, so it was in the harbor. I mean, it was like docked. Well, how did it that's, take them so That's what it looks like. I'm looking at the same ship. Yeah. Um... The SS Northwestern, originally the SS... Orbsaba passenger freighter steamship. Yeah. yeah, that's it. So let me uh, dun, 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 dun. 
running aground during the violent storm. So maybe what it was is it ran aground and then they hauled it to port and burned her? Huh. Ran aground off of Alaska Central Island Lighthouse. Subsequently was beached on the Eagle River sand split. Passengers taken off. Yeah, that's that sounds like it. Nah, this can't be the same ship, though. Yeah, because I, I, I'm not quite sure why it's burning there. I mean, that... Right, it doesn't make sense because it on uh, this one here, I'm looking at the uh, Pedia. Mm-hmm. And it said it was then pressed into service during World War II. Well, couldn't have done that. <laughs> you don't. You don't burn it. So I think there just might be maybe like you were saying, many ships the same name. Oh, the name, yeah. I mean that that's such a what the SS Northwestern. I mean that just got to be a hundred of those. And I'm exaggerating. It's probably only twenty. And then this one, a little bit closer to home here in the Midwest, Great Lakes area, a seasonal resident is trying to solve a mystery of a deceased man. Uh, the resident is of Western Manitoulin, is hoping someone can provide information on who the person that lies at the bottom of a made-up grave site on Robinson Township. The grave site is dated 1900 with lettering unknown on it. Jim Howlett of Hamilton, Ontario, told the record, recorder, the story of a body I think washed up in the shore in 1900 time period, he explained. About 20 years ago, my wife and I were looking for shipwrecks, timber squares, looking all over the west end of the island. We got back to shore just off Walkhouse Bay. We came across a fair-sized wooden cross. We were not far from the shore on the eastern side of Walkhouse Bay, and we had come across a little clearing where we found the grave site with a marker 1900 unknown. It was very obvious at the time that someone had cleared the site and kept it from getting totally overgrown. It was a well-known thing 50 years ago to put a cross up on an unknown grave site, said Mr. Howlett. After asking around, the late Wit Blackburn had told me that his dad had found the body, that he was cutting lumber in the South Shore in the late winter and early spring of 1900 along with another man. They came upon the body of a native, and his father told him he had contacted the RCMP and took three to four days for the RCMP to arrive at Little Current. He had authorized the burial of the man's remains near the scene of his being found. Anyway, the man was buried and the cross was put up there, said Mr. Howlett. Someone had buried the man and built the cross in the grave site in 1900. He also pointed out that a few ships were missing at the same time period, late fall 1899 and early 1900. Mr. Howlett noted that although, oh, that though, through research, he has found that, that one of the shipwrecks, the Typo, had gone down in the area on October 31st, 1889, with several people on board not having been found. Where the ship was found, prevailing winds would direct the body towards the shore where the remains were found. I'm hoping that maybe someone in the island knows about who it is that was buried at the gray site, said Mr. Howlett. He said it has been in conservation with a few area residents, or conversation few area residents that were going to bring this forward to let others know about the mystery and ask them to come forward with information if they have any to share. Obviously, the body has been missing for as many as 118 years, and it's possible the man was a seaman on the Lake Huron vessel that went down. And it obviously didn't make the newspapers because no one so far knew exactly who this person was or what happened. Mr. Howlett visited the area last week and again found the grave site. It's on a public road allowance and a trail on Walkhouse Road. Then then there's a note that says, see next week's recorder for further coverage on this story. So I wonder if they have some more information and that would be out tomorrow, I think would be it. It says, I think this is a weekly paper. This is the uh, Manitoulin Exposis. Uh, I can't talk tonight or any night really. I don't know who I'm fooling. Uh, Expositor. So manitoulin.ca is the website. That you you kind of wonder if that would be possible to tie that back. 118 years unknown. Uh, well, you'd be well, very hard pressed to be able to identify who that is. Well, do you do you the thing the way to do it would be do they know the crew of the typo? So if they've got a roster of who went down and who's missing that was not recovered, 
if you could identify relatives and if you could get permission to exhume the body, uh, teeth and other items, you may possibly get enough DNA out of them that you would be able to match the body with the with a family member and identify them. It's possible, but uh, that's a lot of money for somebody to spend. Yep. And here's one I thought you might be interested. It kind of goes in with our submarine talk from last week. Richard Branson is to head down to the Great Blue Hole sinkhole in a submarine located in the Caribbean Sea off the coast of Belize. The Great Blue Hole has fascinated scientists and explorers for decades. It is the largest sinkhole in the entire world, big enough to swallow two jumbo jets and still have room to spare. In December, Sir Rancher will be driving right to the bottom to raise awareness for protecting our oceans, along with conservationist and filmmaker Fabian Cousteau. The expedition will take him deeper in the sinkhole than any other human has gone before. Scuba divers explored it, but they've never been as far down as this submarine will descend, so there's a lot that's yet to be discovered. Sir Richard describes it as planetary inner space. The expedition will be streamed live and broadcast around the world on Discovery Channel. It's hoped the dive will help show the importance of science, research, and exploration, understanding more about the natural world. If anybody wanted to invite us to go along on that, more than happy to accommodate. They said the hole is 318 meters in diameter and 470 or 407 feet deep. Are it, somebody's got to have been to the bottom. That's just not that deep that it hasn't been looked at. But maybe not. We'll see. Look forward to to seeing that one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that does it for Scuba the News this week. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room today helping us out. We had Karen who's given us quite a few good notes, and I think we missed one right there at the end. I think she was talking about uh, uh, talking about the general shape of the vessel. Fine details are better to be photographed. So we were talking about that article. And then we also have Derek and Eric in the chat room. Let's see. Do you have anything uh, you want to cover this week? Well, I do have another edition, Lessons for Life. You want to go through that one? Certainly. Okay, this one is... Um, an older one. This is basically from um, 2012, but it's still, you know, applicable today. Uh, and in fact, we talked about one last week about an individual at the dive shop or at the dive club meeting. Mm-hmm. Where a guy went to recover his phone in the middle of the night after having been drinking for hours. <laughs> this is similar to that, but different. Uh, it's called Death in the Shallows. Uh, Jolie kept hoping things would get better. She had been certified for a year but had been in the water only once since then. Her first dive of the day had been shaky, but she got through it. She just couldn't get the hang of her buoyancy. Felt like she was either banging off the bottom or floating to the surface. During the surface interval, her buddy told her she just needed practice and it would get better. She kept reminding herself, relax, breathe slowly and easy. In her mid-twenties, Jolie was in good shape, enjoyed being outside. She thought learning to dive sounded like fun. She enjoyed the classes. She dreamed of diving somewhere warm and sunny and clear water, but she hadn't been able to make that trip yet. Her friends went to the local quarry regularly, but Joe Leak never got used to that. She didn't like the heavy wetsuits. While everyone said the visibility wasn't bad, it made her feel uncomfortable and closed in. She had had problems with claustrophobia when younger, and the dark water brought those feelings back the dive. Jolique was using some borrowed gear she had rented and had rented other pieces. She was reluctant to invest in equipment until she felt comfortable. When she got to the core, she realized that the low-pressure hose on her borrowed regulator did not match the inflator connection on her rented BC. Now, she had learned how to orally inflate the BC in her certification class, so her dive buddy convinced her to make the dive anyway. He reasoned that they were going to stay in the shallow end of the quarry where the open water students practiced at a maximum depth of just 10 feet. The one piece of equipment she forgot to bring was her weight belt, and she ended up placing her weights in her BC pocket. Throughout the first dive, Jody or Jolique struggled with her buoyancy control. 
When she began letting air out of her BC on the surface, she dropped quickly to the bottom. She orally inflated her BC, then found herself on the surface. She felt like all she was doing that the entire dive. She spent so much time working on the buoyancy, she never really looked around or had time to relax. The dive ended relatively quickly when she noticed that she basically went through her entire tank. Her dive buddy told her there was no problem, but just asked her to relax, breathe more slowly on the second dive. He also told her to descend to the bottom, add a little air in the BC, not an entire breath every time. The accident. Jolique's panic began early in her second dive. She was uncomfortable on the surface, trying to remember everything her buddy had told her and the lessons she had learned in class a year before. As soon as the water closed over her head, she began breathing quickly. Her buddy later said, looked like a constant stream of air bubbles coming out of her regulator. She descended quickly, hit the rocky bottom on her knees. A group of students had just cleared the area, and the silt had been stirred up, reducing visibility to less than normal. She stayed on her knees for a moment, took the regulator out of her mouth, began scrambling for the disconnected inflator so she could add air to her BC. She never found it. Her panic escalated. She only thought, the only thought that reached her mind was that she needed to be on the surface for air. Jolique's buddy grabbed her alternate air source regulator and tried to give it to her, but she refused it. He tried to give her her own, but she refused it. Without warning, she bolted for the surface. Resuscitation efforts on the beach and nearby hospital were successful. The analysis. This is a classic case of panic leaving, leading to a dive fatality. Jolique wasn't thinking clearly in the water. She took out her regulator before she found her inflator hose. Just those few seconds without an air supply were enough to trip her over the edge. There's very little you can do for someone in a panic state aside from removing them from the situation and allowing them to calm down. This is extremely difficult and dangerous underwater. But while the panic ultimately killed her, the triggers on the dive caused the panic in the first place. Jolique had problems with claustrophobia. Struggling with her buoyancy agitated to the point she wasn't thinking clearly. A root cause of the issue was a discovered low-pressure inflator. She entered the water on the second dive with the same problem, now even more agitated. Ascent from 10 feet was more than enough of a pressure change to cause lung overexpansion injury and cause an arterial gas embolism or age. The stroke-like symptoms as a large air bubble was introduced to the brain, cutting off blood supply, can also cause death rapidly. This is the reason scuba divers are trained never to hold their breath. The lessons for life, there have four of them listed. Don't make dives you are not comfortable making. Don't allow peer pressure to go do into dive you are not ready for. Two, if you feel panicked or have trouble catching your breath underwater, stop. Stop on the bottom, hold into something stable, and relax. Try to relax. Wait for your breathing to settle down before you attempt to swim on. If you're still not comfortable, abort the dive. Be properly equipped for the dive, equipped for the dives. Making sure making do with improper equipment or non-functioning equipment is unsafe. And last, it talked about seek additional training and experience in a situation supervised by a dive instructor. When you're still a newbie like that and hadn't dove very often, you should be right there by a dive instructor, not necessarily a dive buddy. And that's it for tonight, for that one. How many dives was she at at that point? It said she had been a year since her training. So this looks like however many she had in her training, a year later she's now getting into a in 10 yeah. feet of water. Yeah. <sighs> and she'd already yeah. had one dive that day. But but she had the the C card. I mean that that's that's your license. You once you get that you're done. True. But like they say and like we all know, uh panic is it's unreasonable fear. Yeah. You can't reason with somebody. And if she had taken a full breath of air and bolted to the surface, ten feet's all you need to, you know, to kill you. Yeah, you're not doing anybody a favor by trying to talk them into a dive. Uh, Especially like new who doesn't have functioning equipment. Yeah. yeah and in low vis. Yeah, that's a lot of situations there. And 
And unfortunately, well, that's why we, we always say in every every newsletter that we issue is, you know, it's always, always your responsibility to say no. Nobody's going to make fun of you. You, know, you don't need a reason not to go. Just don't do it. And nobody in our club ever says anything about somebody who doesn't want to go for any reason whatsoever. Just no. They just don't feel like it for whatever reason. Then you shouldn't be out there. Exactly. Uh, hey, you don't make the guy want to go. It's only ten feet. Come on. No, you don't do that. Uh, some some of the roughest dives I've had have been in less than fifteen feet of water. Especially if you if you're doing something where you have to come up and down. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like I can do that about three or four times, and at that then it's just too much. It gets my ears. Yeah, that's what that's what it does to me too. Is that uh, it, I, I find it easier to equalize between sixty feet and one hundred and twenty feet than I do at you know ten to twenty feet. Yeah, that first twenty feet is a big one. Yep. So good, good points there. And uh, next week we should be having a guest. Uh, we'll try and tease it a little bit more. We'll try and do a, a tech check before the episode to make sure everything's working. So we'll have a guest on the show. So you can look forward to that. If you'd like to support the show, if you're enjoying it, we are to that time of the year. We got to pay for our hosting. So your support would be certainly appreciated. You can head on over to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over to the Patreon links and $3 or more. will get your early access to the show notes. Any amount is greatly appreciated. Uh, and if you can't, then how about a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to the program on? If you're on iTunes or Google Play or one of those, go ahead and uh, give us that five-star review and let us know how much you like the show. If you got some feedback for us, the show at scubaobsessed.com will get to us, and we'll try and respond as quickly as possible. And let's see, as far as getting in the water, uh, we were supposed to have a turkey dive last weekend, but that got canceled. I did see people trying to organize something. It looks like we'll have a dive coming up this Sunday. We'll have divers in the water at. Sounds like uh, Lake, Lake 16. Lake. I think they're trying. Yeah. Yeah. Because you mentioned and that, Bob. This up, I was going to say, if we keep this up, it might be an ice dive. <laughs> yes. Well, we're supposed to have rain, I, I heard, on Saturday. So we'll see. It uh, might be a little squishy, but that, that's yeah, that's Martin, near Martin, Michigan. So there's a chance that uh, that might stay cold enough. But ice dive this time of year would be unheard of that I'm aware of. I've, I mean, usually about the earliest I can remember is we've did one uh, that first weekend in January after the first. And from what I understand is you've done some ice dives on the first. Oh yeah. Uh, we've, we had, uh, what, year four last, we were out there two weeks before diving mm-hmm. in that pond for that lady. And that was full of ice. So anytime now, you know, another two weeks, it's not uncommon to have ice. Yeah. So we've got ice dive season coming up. Yeah. Karen's saying temperatures in the forties the next couple of days and that's forties Fahrenheit. So, you know, probably two or three in Celsius. Um, yeah, well, the they, skim ice will certainly go away. Yeah. So we'll have, uh, some, uh, you know, we'll have the new year's Eve dive is probably the next big one planned. And then, uh, hopefully we'll have some ice dives coming up and then we start to leak into show season. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be putting out a letter actually, uh, possibly this weekend <laughs> trying to identify who's interested. And uh, who might host it? Ah, uh-huh. what body of water? Based on the feedback, we will either have one or not have one. Yeah, yes, this has the, been the a chat- weird last couple of years as we start getting older. <laughs> the, the chat room is talking about uh, water temperatures. Derek saying he's got thirty degrees Celsius tomorrow, so I, I think he wins. It's uh, <laughs> considerably warmer than what we'll have. Yeah. I'll take that. Yeah. So uh, let's see. Do we have anything that we want to plug? I mean, we've been, we got some activities going on. You know, we've had a dive club meeting last week. We've got the Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve 
has been uh, having some meetings, so hopefully we'll have something coming out of there in the not-too-distant future. Nope, that's so, all I've got myself. That. Yeah. So this time of year, make sure you're hitting your uh, dive shops. It's a holiday season. Uh, they would certainly love your business because uh, for us in the Northern Hemisphere, this can be a long stretch, especially if you don't have an active dive community or doing ice dives and keeping in the water. And those dive shops like to keep going. Uh, if you're not going to dive this winter, which I, I can't see why you wouldn't, I mean, just a little dry suit, some training, and you're ready to get in the water and be toasty warm. But if that's not for you, then how about getting your gear serviced? Uh, drop it by the dive shop, uh, tell them when you are going to need it, and that would certainly help make their season. So if you are ready, I've got a joke. Uh, we've got a, a few jokes that are being submitted by uh, listeners to the program. Uh, this one is from Gene, which I don't know. I don't think we've had anything from Gene before. Maybe, but I'm I'm not sure. So are you ready? Ready. A scuba diver was walking by an insane asylum when all the residents were getting some fresh air in the fenced-in area, and they were saying, six, 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 six. So the diver found a knot hole in one of the pickets, looked through it to see if he could figure out what was going on, and somebody poked him in the eye from the other side. Then they all started yelling, seven, seven, seven. Not sure if I got it. <laughs> I would probably be eight. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, that, okay. <laughs> Until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. Time to kick Craig out of here.